Welcome on in to the Superintendent Radio Network and the third episode of Beyond the Page, the golf course industry magazine podcast that dives a little deeper every month into some of the stories from the pages of our magazine. I'm Matt Lowell, Managing Editor of Golf Course Industry Magazine. This month on the podcast, I talk with Guy Cipriano, the magazine's editor, about our annual State of the Industry survey. The results are in. The stories are in. There's a 24-page package in the January issue. And this year, we asked about a lot of the -the on-the-course and agronomic decisions, but we also asked more questions about you. We turned the questions on their head. We asked, when do you go to bed? How much sleep do you get? When was the last time you went to the doctor? Let's talk about personal health as well as mental health. I also talk with both Kyle Hegland and Jared Kalina. Kyle is the superintendent at Sandhills Golf Club in Mullen, Nebraska, despite what I may say inadvertently very briefly in that conversation. Jared is the director of grounds at Ballyneal Golf and Hunt Club, about three hours away in Holyoke, Colorado. They run a long-lasting and very cool dual internship that takes young turf students to both Nebraska and Colorado, talk with both of them separately. But first, we have our brand new columnist on, Bradley S. Klein. He's an industry veteran, longtime golf journalist, and a former PGA Tour caddy. He is going to write a column every month called Golf Therapy. We talk very briefly about that. We talk more about the late, great Pete Dye, who passed away last week at the age of 94. Brad has a lot of great stories, and we're going to start with that. My first guest on this third episode of Beyond the Page needs no introduction. I'll give him a short one just in case. Bradley S. Klein, many, many decades in golf journalism, started out at the Canadian Golf Magazine Score. Uh, many bylines in Golf Week and Superintendent News and Golf Channel and GolfAdvisor.com. Also, Lynx Magazine, Golf Digest, Sports Illustrated, one of my favorite magazines of all time. It kills me that it's a monthly now. USGA Golf Journal, The New York Times, Met New York Golfer. And now, as of January 2020, uh, the issue is not out yet. It will be online very, very shortly, maybe even today. Should be in your mailbox uh, this week or next week golf course industry with a new column called Golf Therapy. Brad, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? I think you left out a piece I wrote wrote once for the Irish Times. (laughs) There's there's too many great publications, but but thanks for coming on. And before we get to Golf Therapy, I know you're working on a column right now, uh, probably a few pieces, to be honest, about the late, great Pete Dye passed away last week at 94. Uh, we'll get into the column in a few minutes, but let's let's remember Pete Dye and any stories that you want to share, anything that's been top of mind over the weekend. Uh, the floor is yours, and I'll just get out of the way. Well, i got to tell you, Pete was a friend of mine as a, and a colleague, and I wrote about him. I stayed at his house. We played golf. Uh, we built a golf course together. That was the greatest experience ever. Um, Back in 1995, I live in a small town north of Hartford, Connecticut, Bloomfield, Connecticut. They asked me if I could help them get a golf course. I called Pete up. I said, Pete, you got to do a golf course for us for a dollar. 
And then I kind of threatened him. I said, if you don't do it, I'm going to write nasty reviews for the rest of your life. He said, you're going to write them anyway, so I might as well do them. And uh, we got a golf course. So that's a short version of a long story that took eight years. And Tim Liddy helped out his longtime associate. Um, we paid Pete a dollar when the course opened on January, uh, I'm sorry, in June of 2004. Pete made seven trips. Uh, Herb Kohler helped by flying him in once in a while. And he was just great. Uh, he was folksy. He was. It was a tough site. He had a lot of wetlands. He went to the state Department of Environmental Protection. The, the, the one meeting I'll never forget is we walked the site, and uh, the, we come off after about four hours, and the mayor and the town council, everybody's waiting for this, you know, famous, legendary golf course architect. And he's. We're walking around with his dog, Sixty, and uh, the joke was he had a number of dogs named Sixty because he bought them all for like sixty bucks, and um. So we're going out to the site, and it's kind of mucky and all. And we get back, and the mayor and everybody's waiting, and they're all dressed up in jack and tie. And he's standing in his khakis and his boots, and he's sopping wet, and he's picking ticks off the dog, and he's counting. And he sits there, and he doesn't look up until he gets to, like, 23 or 24 and ticks off the dog. And then he finally looks up and says, I, I think we can make it work. And it was just that was him. And then you know, we, went, we went to dinner that night, and we celebrated. We went to Subway. That's, that was his favorite place. So... He was a down-to-earth guy. Uh, you know, I saw him at all sorts of things, uh, uh, building the, uh, the ocean course at Kiowa uh, right after the storm down there. Uh, I played one of the great days, played opening day with him and uh, Tony George at the Speedway in, um, at Indianapolis uh, Golf Course. Uh, and just he was down-to-earth, and people loved him, and he was folksy, and he, he could hang out with the the, the the folks behind the counter at Subway, and he was friendly with them, and he was never suffering uh, fools, and he just had a great folks, and, and, and he taught people. He was so great with shapers, and, and uh, you know, the, the fact that he left such a great legacy of uh, Jason McCoy, who works for Greg Norman, and Tim Liddy, and uh, John Harbottle, who passed away way too early up in the Seattle area, um, Jim Urbina, Tom Doe, Bill Core. Uh, Scott Poole, who does the green scans, uh, Ron Ferris, uh, Dave Postelway, uh, Lee Schmidt, all these guys, Bobby Weed uh, learned from him as well. So that's a very powerful legacy. And, uh, you know, it's not just his golf designs, but his influence on how the craft was taken, how it was done, uh, his relationship with superintendents, and he cultivated them and he stayed with them a long time Um and um, it's a great legacy, and there's nobody quite like him in, in that folksy, down-to-earth way. When you were working with him closely 15, 16, 17 years ago, whatever the exact timeline was up in Connecticut, what was the process like when you, when you got to see him out on the course? What was, what was Pete Dye's scoping out of the land and, and just process out there, at least in your case? Well, he kind of sounded like a demented farmer, um, and that's what I remember most. Is I, I was trying to write down some of the stuff, and it, none of it made any sense. But you transcribe it, you know. But he he could relate to shapers. Uh, I'll give you just the way he his, his thinking was so different. We had a site with a power line down the middle, and the way Tim Liddy had laid out the golf course uh, was uh, on paper, at least, was uh, the first green was sitting there right in front, right. Kind of next to the uh, the power line, the the big post behind it, and Tim uh, 
was a little nervous because he thought, you know, hey, you don't really want to show off this power line. And Pete moved the green so that it was directly in front of the power line post because he figured, let's get it over with so they'll forget it by the time they get to 12. And that was the kind of weird thinking that he would do. Um, and um, so he had a way of, we had a lot of trouble with the shapers, and he just could talk to them and get them to think differently. And um, and, and um, he was down on his hands and knees, scratching out. You know, his idea of design was, uh, and he did this. There's a famous sequence at the Ford Plantation outside Savannah, Georgia, where they did a big renovation, and I was, I was uh, watching this go on, and Tim Liddy has documented it. But most of that renovation work, uh, the layout was, Pete on his hands and knees, scratching stuff in the dirt, and then take with his foot and he'd erase it. And he said, "All right, go go build it now." You know, so that's the sort of way. And then the, the document paper trail was kind of a cover your butt memo afterwards. Um, and he was innovative in that sense. He understood dirt, the volumes, he, and mainly, I would say, eighty percent of what he was concerned with was drainage. It was just getting water off. And uh, that was the whole thing. So he had a great vision of land and making it work, and um, he was just different. Um, you know, you just, I don't know if you can get away with that stuff anymore. Uh, well, you know, Bill and Ben do it. Uh, Doak and Gill and all these guys have a, a way of professionally estimating volumes and working with spreadsheets and all that, but Pete had it all figured out in his head, so... Uh, it was quite a remarkable thing to, to witness. I don't know that I've ever heard anybody described as a demented farmer, and I don't know that I've read that in any of the the pieces uh, that have come out about Pete Dye in the last few days. That's it's it's quite a description. I think it's also a tremendous compliment to the work that he did for so many years. Well, it's done with love and respect, and um, he just had a folksy kind of way of getting through to people and. He used to love hiring people who had never been on a golf course to do a shaping because that way he could get them to do what he wanted rather than have them build, you know, like some contractors the last six courses they had done for other architects. So, And he could just get them to shape it out. And he would just show you. He said, I want you to look, you know, rough it out for me. A lot of people think that he would change his mind in the field, but in fact it was evolving and he would respond to what he saw. I think sometimes he got into trouble when he was when he had jobs with contractors because they'd want to go ahead and finish it and grass it, and he'd come back and look at it and say, "Oh, it's not really what I wanted. You got ahead of me here." So then he'd, he'd get a bad reputation sometimes that he didn't deserve for for changing his mind when in fact he, he was reacting to what was going on in the field. And if you understood that, uh, you could you could deal with it. Um, so um, he was just different, real different. And uh, you know, he had no formal training. He was a great golfer, played in the uh, uh, U.S. Open in 57. He and Nicholas made their debut at the same time. Uh, of course, it was, it was also Dye's last U.S. Open. Um, he went over in 63 to play in the British Amateur at St. Andrews and on the way uh, went around with Herbert Warren Wynn, the writer, to look at and measure all these golf courses like Prestwick and Turnberry and Dornick. And, and they learned a lot, or Pete learned a lot, and it transformed his understanding of the game. He was also very influenced by Seth Rayner. I think uh, the big course that shaped his thinking was Camargo down in Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. He was really impressed with that. And you can think of Pete as kind of a... You know, the, the classic architects all designed by building down and taking dirt down. Whereas in the 60s, guys like Dick Wilson and Robert Trent Jones and George Fazio, they were building up. They, 
put a bunker where they wanted and then, you know, a 260 out off the back tee and then put a pipe underneath to drain it. And then, uh, whereas Guy was trying to find a natural low spot where he could make it work more naturally. So um, he was just different. And uh, I think people under, in, inside the business, they understood that. I don't think a lot of golf writers knew him well enough. I don't think the public ever saw him. And certainly the golf pros never did because I think they were more um, upset about how demanding his golf courses were visually and psychologically. But um, that's because he generally... Uh, Pete could build in a way that would tempt the good players to, to try shots that they couldn't handle or, 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 or that had no margin of error if they missed. Yeah. So, um, but he was, uh, he was just different and innovative, and he was always thinking uh, in a way that was uh, about the land, really. So I uh, always found him interesting. Never found him boring or predictable. Yeah. A few minutes ago you mentioned so many of the folks who learned from him uh, didn't mention, and, and if you did, and I completely missed it, uh, didn't mention Alice, uh, his late wife Alice, or uh, their boys. Uh, what, what does it say about a man when he's got not only a legacy uh, like, like Pete Dye does, uh, but also that his whole family uh, kind of dives in to his profession, and, and they all make great names for themselves as well? Well, it's a complicated story. Uh, the first thing is that Alice is the real hero of the whole thing because she saved him as a businesswoman uh, who kept the, the, his design practice from going bankrupt. I mean, I, I can't imagine Pete was very good with spreadsheets and budgets. Alice was the business agent, um, and uh, also she had a very good mind about uh, making the, sure the golf course was playable uh, for every class of player. Uh, Pete could kind of sometimes get a little worried about tour players, especially after J- Daly uh, dissected Crooked Stick at the 91 PGA, and kind of Pete got real obsessed about uh, defeating tour pros. But Alice was a genius uh, at the business, and also she had a very strong vision of the game. You know, she's really the, uh, the visionary behind the uh, 13th hole at Harbortown, the famous little par three, uh, par four, the short four bolstered up by the sleepers, the railroad sleepers. She's the one who basically encouraged Pete to turn uh, that pile of sand and mush uh, at the 17th hole of Sawgrass into the island green. So she was uh, a very accomplished, uh, not only a great golfer, but a good designer herself. Uh, uh, now, the boys, uh, Perry and PB, um, I think they were more enamored with the construction side. I think they were always interested in building and shaping and creating and uh, a, a somewhat more aggressive approach to landforms than, than their dad, and uh, different style. But, um, you know, certainly they made an impact, particularly in Asia and in the Southwest and in South Florida. So uh, it's a lot coming out of a small op. The other thing that uh, Pete and Alice did is they took in uh, kind of wayward uh, architect interns from Australia and Ireland and Europe, and they housed them, and they put them up, and they put up with them, and they let them develop their skills, and then they blessed them and went went their way. So there's a whole network, uh, colleagues, family, and friends uh, that is very much alive. And uh, it's quite amazing to hear the stories when they get together. And without taking anything away from what you're writing right now uh, for various websites and for, for GCI as well, what are maybe the one or two things and and that's not even really a fair question. But what are the what are the handful of things, Brad, that you will not 
ever forget about Pete Dye? Oh, just the respect he had for every crew member. Uh, how He understood how hard their job was. He understood how hard he was going to make them work and how much uh, creativity and, and, and latitude he gave them as well. So that he showed a lot of respect. I mean, first of all, there were never d- direct plans that they had to follow, so it was always back and forth between them. But he could... He could do that with guys coming off a farm in Georgia who had never seen a golf course before. And that that was a very impressive... Uh, he could do it with road builders, too, who were used to you know taking a D8 and just building some dead flat stretch, and he'd try to get them to do something interesting. So uh, that, to me, more than anything else, was a uh, great skill he had. And um, he also, when he had official dumb, you know, whether it's a mayor or a board or a, a water... Uh, commission or a regulatory body, he had a folksy way of reverting to a, an explanation that was, uh, I don't know where, where he came up with it, but um, he, he could convince them of just about anything that he was doing would make sense. And um, I think he talked himself out of a lot of trouble that way in terms of the regulatory controls. And a lot of it worked. So, so um, he had just a fantastic ability to communicate to every kind of person in the world. Well, there will be more... Uh on golfcourseindustry.com about the late Pete Dye in the February issue. We'll have more about his life and his career. And I know Guy Cipriano, the editor of the magazine, will focus on Pete's work and life in the next episode of Tartan Talks, which will come out later this month. I don't want to take up too much of your time, Brad, so let's just focus for a couple minutes on your new column. It debuted in the January issue of Golf Course Industry, Golf Therapy. And one real quick pull quote, again, don't want to detract from the column, want folks to still read it. Golfers who judge a course in terms solely of green speeds are like those who think that the criteria for greatness in a golf course are limited to length and difficulty. I feel like this is going to be a real special column, uh, again, premiered in the January issue. What are your, what are your goals uh, for this column? And, and I just love that you're in our pages. It's fantastic. Well, first, I should admit that my lawn looks like hell. Um, <laughs> Mine too. It's kind of like the shoemaker whose uh, kids go barefoot. Um, so uh, I've been writing about superintendents for a long time because I've been enamored by them and have respect. You know, I started Superintendent News uh, 20 years ago and wrote, mostly wrote the first couple of years of that. And I've been a big follower of the whole networks, whether it's TurfNet, or the GCS, or, or the, the Golf Course Superintendents Association, um, and um, I have a lot of respect, and I've always spoken at these conferences and local and national chapter meetings. So I first don't think that the golf industry fully appreciates the, the hard labor and work and knowledge and technical science that goes into making a golf course function well. Uh, I don't think the industry has enough recognition of that. I, I certainly don't think most golfers do. And there's also, and this is part of the, uh, the column I'm writing, going to be writing regularly, uh, is I, I think somehow there's a little bit of uh, too much humility on the part of superintendents. They tend to be kind of shy guys that people, they prefer, you know, getting out there at five in the morning, uh, walking the golf course by themselves. They're not happy or comfortable in meetings for the most part. Um, uh, and, I don't, and so I think that they could probably do a little bit more to advance themselves, but uh, their work generally speaks for themselves, uh, and uh, I want to just highlight that. And I learn a lot by listening to superintendents. Uh, I talk to them all the time. I've learned a tremendous amount about golf course setup. Um, 
and I'm going to just try to keep writing about that, and uh, hopefully that the public will understand that there's not one standard of, of conditioning, that what we see on the PGA Tour is an exception, not the rule, uh, that uh, given the diversification of the marketplace and the economics and the difficulties of uh, sustainability, we're going to have to get used to a very, very different uh, range of acceptable conditions for the golf. And, you know, I've, in that sense, I've always been inspired by my experience at Lynx Golf. I've spent a lot of time in Scotland, and I've seen the beauty of those kind of conditions and think that they are um, uh, important, provide important lessons for, for American golf. So I'm going to just try to keep conveying that in those pages. And uh, the whole point of golf course therapy. You know, I do a lot of design consulting. I'm involved with a lot of clubs now. And one of the things I think about is I, my job is to tell people what they need to hear and what no one else is going to tell them. And in a lot of clubs, that's basically the message is your golf course isn't as good as you think it is, but it could be, a, and it could be a whole lot better. And so my job, like a therapist, is to sort of listen and to help and to prod and to see where improvements can be made. And that's done out of respect. I think sometimes in the golf industry, people think that when you're, making a critical judgment, you're being disrespectful. And uh, I think there's not, it's perceived as negativity, whereas I think it should be perceived as trying to be helpful and encouraging and to elicit and deepen the strengths and characters of a golf course. So that's how I see my role. And um, I guess I'm at the point now where I'm not really worried if people find it to be a little bit, um, what's the word, presumptuous, because I'm at an age where I've seen a lot, and I'm going to try to convey that and try to listen and uh, be thoughtful and respectful in, uh, of the job and the time and the, and the effort that superintendents play. They spend an awful lot of time out there, and I don't think they're – they get more recognition than they used to, but it's not even close to what they deserve. And you are a doctor. It's a Ph.D., not an M.D., but you do have a doctorate, so there is, uh, there is some legitimacy in the therapist angle of the column name. Well, I was a PGA Tour caddy for uh, several years. Well, that too, years, yes. And that's the best therapeutic, or the, that's, that's a pure form of therapeutic relationship. You learn there when to speak up and when to shut up because you're in the midst of watching somebody, uh, you know, make a fortune or squander a fortune. And uh, it's all about the psychological management of the patient there. So it's one of the things I've learned. Um, uh, you learn when to speak up and... Uh, you know, in, in those situations, you're better off speaking up later than in the middle of a round. But uh, at some point, you have to say something. So, uh, so there we go. You know, it's, um, it's I've been doing this for a long time. Um, I have a background as an academic, and I try to convey that in a way that's lighthearted. But, um, you know, I think the golf industry has come a long way, and uh, it's going to have to keep evolving in order to make uh, it sustainable moving into the future. So uh, I think superintendents are the key to that because they have a tremendous budget and a resource base. And, um, you know, the, the irony is that a golf course, uh, the golf course at, at, at almost every facility, it's about 30% of the budget, 80% of the revenue. So <laughs> uh, they're the key to the operation. So just trying to help them out. Well, thrilled to have you on board. Thank you so much for taking the time for the third episode of Beyond the Page. We'll have you on again in, a, in another episode shortly. Uh, until then, we'll see you in Orlando at the Golf Industry Show in a couple of weeks. Safe travels down there. And again, thank you so much. Bradley S. Klein, the new columnist for Golf Course Industry, Golf Therapy is that column. 
Our next guest on this episode of Beyond the Page is way out west. We've got Jared Kalina. He is the director of grounds at Ballyneal Golf and Hunt Club in Holyoke, Colorado. Jared, welcome to the program. How are you doing? Very good, and thank you for having me. I appreciate being on. Yeah. If folks have not had a chance to look at the January issue yet, there's a great seven-page feature by one of our contributors, Lee Carr, about a really interesting program that you run uh, with a former, well, not really a former mentor, he's still a mentor, uh, Kyle Hegland at Sandhills Golf Club in Mullen, Nebraska. It's about three hours from where you are. You used to work for him, you actually interned under him, and now that you're about three hours away, you two run a pretty unique dual internship program. Tell me more about that. Well, thank you, and I think Lee did a great job highlighting what we're trying to do out here. Um, Basically, due to um, tough times when it comes to finding good student interns, uh, we decided to try and stand out in some form or fashion, and this was our best bet, was to decide if you're going to come all the way out to one of us and see us, um, you should get both experiences in one summer, and uh, I think it just makes you twice as twice as ready to join the workforce someday when you've got to cram two operations down into into one session i think it was it's been good for all parties you interned under kyle i guess about 12 years ago now right and then you returned and you worked under him for about five years that's right that's that's correct i was one of the actually the first guinea pig in going to ballyneal and sandhills at the same time actually i interned here for a short time during that summer under the now general manager, Dave Hensley. So, small world, but yeah, I was the first person to to see both places in a summer, and now here we are. So when you were an intern, what were your thoughts going from one to the other, spending a summer at both places? I imagine you loved it, because now you work at one of them. Uh, But when you were were younger, what, what were your thoughts during that internship? It was great. I felt like I was getting a leg up on everybody else that was just staying in one place for the 8-10 week, 12 week internship. I thought there was enough overlap that I wasn't going to get lost due to same grass types, same same climate and all that, but in terms of the staff and how the club operates and how you know both guys went about their business, it was vastly different and to be able to pick and choose what you liked from both operations and make your own one day is was ideal. It's awesome. And let's go over, I guess let's go over the similarities first, because I get the feeling there are a lot more things that are different between Sandhills and Ballyneal than there are similar. What are some of the similarities between the two before we get into the mini differences? Sure. Um, well, grass type for one, uh, we're both fine fescue, fairways and, and, uh, that playing surface is pretty rare, especially in an area that you know gets to zero degrees and 100 degrees in calendar year. So uh, we share that. And bank grass greens, um, that is a new thing for Ballyneal. Only started about five years ago. It was all fescue, but now moving, transitioning to bent. And so we share grass types. We also draw from the same water source, the Ogallala Aquifer, which is you can dive into a deep wiki, Wikipedia hole about the Ogallala Aquifer and what a great water source that is. So we share that and, and some of the climate changes, I guess, of the, the weather, the wind, pretty unique to the areas, but something that we share in common. And the many, many more differences, obviously different folks 
running the clubs. There's even different makeups to the crew. Um, maybe dive in a little bit to, you'd alluded earlier, to some of the differences there are between Sandhills and Ballyneal. Well, we'll just go with the makeups of the respective towns. Um, in Mullen, you got, and Kyle will be, be expand on it better than me, but it's it's simply just ranching. It's a ranching communities, people that have owned farms on that land for five generations and, you know, 150 years. Some incredible stories right around that club. And if you don't work uh, for yourself as a rancher or you're not at the hospital or at the school, you know, you're at Sandhills. And here it's uh, different industries. We're the first county in Colorado, Phillips County, to have a minority as the majority in our school system. Uh, we're 51% Hispanic or Latino descent uh, in the school system, and that is due to a lot of uh, the pig and meat packing processing plants we have around here. Seaboard is a large, large employer. So just the makeups of, of that and what that brings to the staff, which is a bunch of students, a bunch of locals where I have a lot of uh, transplants, a lot of immigrants, a lot of, you know, we speak a lot of Spanish in my, in my, in my break room and not so much in his. So there's vast cultural differences, even though we're only two, three hours away. And are you fluent in Spanish? I wouldn't say fluent. I'm trying to work on it. We're, <laughs> we, I got a working, working knowledge of the language. I have a great foreman who's bilingual, um, Arturo, and I, I couldn't go without him right now, but we're trying. We're trying. Are you any any good at conjugating verbs? That was always my hang-up. I was decent with vocabulary, terrible at conjugating verbs. You know, verbs. I can do the present tense. We got that, <laughs> but if we want to start talking about the past or the future, that's when, you know, that's when I sound pretty American. <laughs> so you arrived at Ballyneal, I think it was about three years ago now, now that we're into 2020. I think it was 2017. Is that right? That's right. I'm about to start season four that's right yeah what brought you back to the property oh my gosh it's so inspiring it's it's i say it all the time people get tired of hearing it around me but it's the easiest place to get up and go to work you know we don't hit the, i don't have to hit the snooze button it's it's gorgeous it's inspiring it's beautiful it's it just brings out a lot of passion and it still does three years later um it was quite the opportunity to run something so prestigious at, at quite a young age. Um, they don't give out a bunch of top 100 superintendent jobs, so the, the opportunity to do something that I knew I could do, work in the Sandhills, work in a small community, grow fescue in, in tough conditions, you know, I, I knew I could do this, and I had to jump at it. So. And you just mentioned it. You're still pretty young. Are you even in your early 30s right now? Yeah, I'm 33. Wow. Okay. So younger than me by a few years. That's a good age, 33. I like 33. It's, uh, I'm, I'm enjoying it so far. <laughs> so good. <laughs> How often do you get to talk with Kyle? Uh, he's still about three hours away, so it's not like you can just run up the road and see him if you have to. Um, no, it's it's just out of that range. I probably see him in person maybe six times a year, and we talk. It's probably weekly. Um it can get a little hectic in the summertime and get a little lax, but uh, especially when we're all snowed in, and uh, I talk more frequently now. And you guys are getting snow right now, which it shouldn't be surprising. It's January in Colorado, but you're watching the snowfall from the from the maintenance facility right now. You said right? It's it's one of the best views 
it's one of the best views of all time watching snowfall. We, you know, we're Colorado, so you think of the Rocky Mountains and a bunch of snow, but we only get about 18 inches of, of snowfall or rainfall, I guess, annually. And so it's it's actually pretty dry, arid climate, and we're always looking for for some snow cover out here. Winter is probably our biggest challenge in terms of having the golf course ready to go for the spring. Um, we have a deep line watering system that we just got done going through yesterday, actually, watering stuff. Um, yeah, so seeing snow out the window is, is the best. And if we focus a little bit for a few minutes more on the dual internship that you and Kyle run, not the only dual internship out there. There are some really good ones. No. Uh, Casey no, Coffin, no. Nicole Sherry, uh, Trinity Force, and the Baltimore Orioles have a, a dual sport internship between Dallas and Baltimore. Um, there's the Bentree Country Club and FC Dallas dual internship. I think that's with Blake Kane. Uh, same city, again, different sports. But you guys offer, for the really, really uh, golf-focused, maybe the young person who's on a, on a superintendent track, like you offer, I think, one of the best dual internships out there. Um, what, what are the deadlines that, that folks should be looking at if, if they're filling out internship applications right now? Well, you are too late for the 2020 oh, no. season. I would I would suggest getting your stuff together a little earlier is my first uh, piece of advice. Uh, we're looking for people, um, as I guess, as soon as that fall semester starts, really. September, October, we let um, kids get back to school, think about last summer and if they enjoyed it or not, and then try to try to tackle it by Halloween, get everybody figured out. It's just such a journey. It's it's so far to come see us. we got to arrange some housing for you that we just try to have it all locked up in advance before the new year. So, so without naming names, obviously, you've got, you've got your next class all, all scheduled up here? Yes. Excellent. Yeah, we're excited about it. And how many, how many folks are coming in for that? We have four. Okay. Um, each course will have two at a time. And that just gives us a lot of hands-on uh, time with everybody. Um, it's a little selfish in our regard as well. We're doing this for us as well. It's it's tough to find um, assistance, and this is kind of our little seedling program. Really, can you handle living in a town of 2,000 that that doesn't have fast food, that doesn't have Walmart, that does you know? Can you do that, and can you enjoy the job? And so. Both sides benefit from this. You, the student gets to see two top 100s in, in one summer and see how two different operations are run within a top 100, and we get to possibly poach somebody for down the line. Hey, you, would you be interested in coming back? And they really don't need to look any farther than just looking at you, a former intern who now is is running one of the two clubs. Exactly, yep. And... I just hired somebody who just came through the intern program for full time themselves. So uh, it's just going to hopefully keep paying itself off here. That's awesome. What else besides being able to live in kind of a more isolated place? Like you said, no fast food, no Walmart. There's a couple thousand residents. What else besides that are you looking for in possible interns in, in your pool of applicants? I'm always looking for passionate, diligent, intelligent folks, people that can get up and do it again the next day you know um we like to have fun it's 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 kind of a cliche thing but honestly i i demand that the people that work for me play golf and understand 
what you know our members and their guests are seeing out there and just try to keep it lighthearted. It's just grass, you know. It can get tough at times, so a lot of jokes get thrown around, and I'm looking for somebody that can that can hang in that regard, I guess. And I can't remember if it was you or Kyle in the story who said, if you're not bringing your clubs, you're not getting hired. It, it might have been both of you, honestly, <laughs> at least at least in spirit. One of you said it and the other was thinking it, but if, if folks don't bring their golf clubs, you're just not going to hire them. I don't, uh, you know, I shake my head at the guy who says I don't have time for it. I don't like it. <laughs> I don't enjoy it. I, I, f- I feel sorry that you feel that way. Um, it's it's quite a fun game and uh, to be a steward of it. And I think it's important to be seen out there by, you know, and, and someone in my regard needs to be seen as someone who's playing the game, understands the game. I think it helps. I think it helps, you know, establish relationships amongst the people that work for me, amongst the people I work for, and just it pays itself off. You don't have to be good. You just have to play fast and smile, and that's it. Then people will want to go out and play with you. Just go out and maybe make one par. That's all. <laughs> It'll keep you coming back. Yep. Uh, Jared Kalina, director of grounds at Ballyneal Golf and Hunt Club out in Holyoke, Colorado. Before I let you go, anything else that you want to promote? Anything you want to plug? Anything going on? I just want to make sure everybody knows that uh, this game is fun and to try to have fun with it. That's what we try to do out here. So, Excellent. One half of the feature story, So Far, So Valuable, by Lee Carr in the January issue of Golf Course Industry. Jared, thanks so much for joining me. Have a great rest of your January. Thank you very much. Same to you. You just heard from Jared Kalina. Now a bonus conversation with Kyle Hegland. He is the superintendent at Sand Hills Golf Club in Mullen, Nebraska. Just celebrated his 13th anniversary there a week ago today. Uh, Kyle, welcome to the podcast. Congratulations on 13 years at Sand Hills. Beautiful, beautiful golf club. And uh, you basically started the internship program that now crosses between Sand Hills and uh, Balladeal Golf and Hunt Club. Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, it started, I think, as anybody, the first thing, you know, first thought on my mind when I took the job here, 2007, was uh, you know finding some good quality interns. And initially, it just ended up with having one intern, and my first year I had none. So my first actual intern was Jared Kalina, who is the superintendent now at Bally Neal. And uh, I got to know the superintendent at Bally Neal prior to Jared, who Dave Hensley, who's the GM now at Ballyneal, and we had talked about, you know, hey, why don't you, our courses are similar enough, we're, you know, relatively speaking, close enough in proximity, which is about a three-hour car drive between the two of us, why don't you send your interns, come see our place, vice versa, and Jared went there, I think that would have been 2008, um, went for a week um, to Ballyneal, spent a week, and Dave sent his interns over here, they had two of them, they came and spent a week with us, and we really liked it. And talking to Jared when he came back, you know, we, we, we thought it probably was a better opportunity to be a, a longer experience rather than just a week. And somewhere in that capacity, you know, I, don't, I just did, it just didn't work out between 
Dave and I and having interns like from a logistical standpoint. So we just always kind of put it on the back burner and um, talked about it ad nauseum. Honestly, we were always trying to think of something new and, and, and interesting to do. Uh, it wasn't that long ago that I was an intern, and I think Jared would say the same thing. So we just talked about it, and then Jared gets the superintendent job at Valley Neal, and we just thought it was a natural fit. That was four years ago now, three year, four years ago now, and it started then, and we've just tried to grow and make it a little better each year, um, always trying to you know, constantly tweak it, change some things up, make sure the kids are getting the best learning opportunity that they can get, and that's beneficial for us, too, so that uh, we're not constantly training guys and doing all that. So we'd like to think we've gotten a little better each year. We hope to continue to keep doing that, talking to kids, making sure we're meeting all their needs, and, you know, that's just kind of how we're pretty excited about it, and we're excited what the future brings with it. Now, there are a handful of really cool dual internships out there, and, and if you've listened to the whole podcast and you and you heard the conversation with Jared, we mentioned those at the end of that segment. Uh, when you started this program, though, were there a lot out there, or, or was this kind of more of a novel? I mean, it's not that it's not a novel concept now, but like kind of a, a you were it, or you were one of like one or two out there when you, when you kind of dreamed this up hard to say because I've talked to some guys um, you know a, a lot of them that you guys have mentioned and I think one of the things that spawned this is that it's just harder and harder to get interns. In 2007 you know at being at Sandhills I didn't have to put a, a posting up for anything I mean I just had 10 or 12 guys most years you know there was some years a little less than others but I mean I had plenty of applicants that's just not the case I don't care if you're at Sandhills or Ballyneal or Cypress Point I mean it's just it's just tougher and tougher. So I think it I think everybody's gotten a little creative. I think it'd be a little self centric to think that we were the ones that kind of initiated all that. It just seemed like a natural fit. Um, like I said, it wasn't that long ago that I was an intern. It was always interesting to me. I wanted to see every golf course within driving distance of of where I was at. So I think it just kind of probably just organically spawn from that like hey let's go see some other places let's offer these kids let's get these kids seeing what else is around and in some places that's just not very common you know it's just you know the neighbor who's possibly another world-class place is just someplace we're not going and we just didn't want to do that that's just not that's not our way of doing it we're friendly we're excited to see what everybody else is doing we want you know it just—it was just a more natural fit, you know, with Jared and I because we were such good friends, and I knew for a fact that if I sent, you know, interns over to Jared and vice versa, I think he'd say the same thing that they were going to get at least somebody who cared about them, somebody that was going to try to teach them and learn and, and grow with them. But I knew they were going to go and have fun and, and uh, move forward in the industry. If that makes any sense. And you're in Colorado now. You. Grew up in Wisconsin, so good, hearty, Midwestern stock. What are you looking for in an intern? I'm sure there's a lot of similarities between what you and Jared look for, but you specifically, Kyle, what are what are you looking for when you get those applicants? Well, I the people out here would kill me if I let you say that we were in Colorado. We're in Western Nebraska. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Bally <laughs> <laughs> Neal's in Colorado. You're in Holman, Nebraska. I even have the map in front of me, and I said the wrong state. The people are all are all great out here. You know, I grew up. I can say they're great out here because I'm not from here. My kids are Mullenites. I am not. I grew up in Southwest Wisconsin, uh, rural. You know, 
quality people first and foremost for, for 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 the most part and you know what we're looking for is you know it probably has changed and like you said earlier 13 years here being the superintendent you know when there's a lot of a lot more applicants you can maybe have of you know your your views get skewed one way or the other and you're looking for certain things but what we're looking for is people that will fill positions with us in the future um all three of my assistants have all come up through our program um they all happen to have Nebraska ties. So it's not something that's an absolute must. But a big deal for us is Mullen, Nebraska, is not necessarily for everyone, and that's okay. The golf course, if you're in the golf industry, I'm pretty comfortable. If you go to Bally Neal or Sandhills, those golf courses are, are for pretty much anybody in the golf industry because they're just great golf courses. But living out here, that's not necessarily true. So we've had some kids that, you know, think they can make it out here and it just doesn't work out. So our, you know, our internship program is kind of like a feeder system. It gives them an opportunity to come out here, see what we're doing, hopefully learn something. But, you know, what I'm looking for is are they going to be able to make it? Can they make it January, what day is it today, the 7th, whatever it is, when we're not open, when when it's cold and nasty and you don't want to go outside and, you know, it's it's not for everybody, and that's okay. It's, it doesn't mean it needs to be for everybody. But that's our main goal with our internship is to uh, to uh, harvest these kids and make sure we're we get another set of eyes on them so that they're successful. We get kids that want to be here and are successful doing what we do, and, and it's just a symbiotic relationship from there. And it it can be tough. There's a quote in the story again by Lee Carr. So far, so valuable in the January golf course industry it's the it's the first quote in the story uh and it's from you and it's kind of a description of what people do in mullen nebraska for work you teach you ranch you work for the railroad or you work for us that's just the way it is out here and you mentioned right before we started recording that what what's the closest movie theater in north platte like an hour away yeah 70 miles one way wow. yeah sure yeah it's it's just it's just a unique part of the country um even if you're not a golf course fan uh, the golf courses out here there are several of them uh i would put valley neal in the sand hills or they're, they're, they would call those the chop hills of, of eastern colorado but similar terrain and what have you and there's wonderful ones out here wild horse in gothenburg and dismal river and the prairie clubs and and they're building another golf course called capstone ranch and the golf courses are for everybody but the sand hills of nebraska are just a very very unique place it, very big part of nebraska that very very few people have seen it's just very remote it's very rural there's lots of land and lots more cows and it's just not for everybody you know i can't imagine when they were building the golf course in the early 90s how isolating it must have been because it feels isolated out here you know a little bit and it's 2020 um but back then before internet and quality roads and i can't imagine uh how uh, daunting of a task it would have been to be walking in here and trying to be the superintendent of Sandhills Golf Club from just a personal standpoint. Um, but, yeah, I think everybody should come out and see it. It's, it's the last natural grassland left in North America. It's a beautiful place. There's zero light pollution out here. It is one of the it, – it's really hard to gauge the scale of the Sandhills. It's just this large piece of open ground that is – you just have to kind of put your feet on it to, to see it, and I encourage anybody to come out and see it, even if you're not a golfer. I know we hadn't talked about it beforehand, but you bring up light pollution, 
and I live in a fairly dense urban area, about seven miles, eight miles outside of Cleveland, Ohio. There's street lamps. I can walk at night on a grid and and feel pretty safe. Uh, how like how is life different when you've got such little light pollution? When when you can actually look up and see the stars, and you can not have your your circadian rhythms switched because of of street lights and and just all sorts of uh, urban dwellings around you. Well, again, I'll say it as much as I can. It's just not it's not for everybody. But I think the people that are out here really appreciate it. And, and again, I think it's one of the things that makes us really successful as a club is it's it's just so far off the grid um, from normal American life. It's not like I grew up in Mullen, Nebraska. I was in Austin, Texas before I came here. So it's not like I'm just some local kid who this is the only way I think it is. Um, to look up in the middle of summer and you can see the Milky Way with your own two eyes because there's no light pollution, it's pretty special. See the meteor showers and... What makes it different is, you know, my kids love going out with me to work. Uh, we don't have three-phase power out here, so every time I have to turn on irrigation in the summer, I actually have to physically come out here and turn on a generator to uh, power our pumps, which sounds terrible. Um, it was actually quite fun. It's one of my funnest things I get to do. My kids come with me. I have an 11-year-old, a 7-year-old, Riley and Carson, and also my wife and my dogs. We come out and run around, and it's... Uh, <laughs> uh, I say it a lot. My kids think everybody's got 8,700 acres to run around on and call their own. It's a pretty special thing to be able to get to be a part of. I don't know if I answered your question. Uh. <laughs> no, I think I think to a large degree, you know, when you when you have that space and when you're able to look up and and just see, like you said, see the Milky Way or see actual uh, um, constellations up there. You know, most of it with your bare eye. Uh, no, that's pretty special, and that's something that's lost in in a lot of America. It's it's nice that you have it, and it's nice that we still have some spots in the country that aren't overpopulated or so densely populated that uh, that's still a thing. It's it's one of the things I every guest that I have that's a guest of mine, I tell them to. Hey, you got to have a burger at the porch. The food's wonderful here. You got to have a steak down below because we're in beef country. Down below would be the clubhouse. And then you got to come back up to the golf course sometime in the evening and just just drink in the stars a little bit. It's just there's just very few places left where you can see them as well as you can here, and with no trees or you know large hills to get in the way. It's just a 360 view of uh, the stars. It's pretty it's pretty special. I try not to ever take that for granted. There's a reason, and Montana gets all the credit. But there's a reason that it's big sky country. Montana's obviously the big sky state, but I feel like it goes farther south than just Montana. It does. It's where there's, you know, there, I, I grew up in Wisconsin where there's lots of trees, and here not so much. I, I don't, it's going to sound terrible. I don't miss them from a turf standpoint, but I don't miss them from a, just a visual standpoint. I like to see them here and there, but I'll take, I'll take the big skies of the Great Plains and the, and the mountains every day. I know we deviated a little bit from the internship program. This is beyond the page, not off the course. Off the course, of course, we talk about anything and everything off the course. Uh, beyond the page, we talk about the magazine itself. Just one more question for you, Kyle, and I'll I'll let you get back uh, to the rest of the day in, in Mullen, Nebraska. Not to the rest of the day in Holyoke, Colorado. Apologies <laughs> again. Uh, when I talked with Jared, and, and he had this on his segment, was... 
all the applications are already in. You've you've pretty much I think picked your crews for uh, your intern crews for this upcoming summer. Obviously, you can't name names, but uh, pretty good looking internship groups. Yeah, absolutely. We have a great bunch of kids. Yeah, we're full. Um, with that said, as with any program, you know things always seem to happen. Something somebody might end up getting sick or something happens, but we think we're full right now. That doesn't mean we would. Uh, we're always looking for great candidates. I think that's a fair assessment with anything. If you're willing to come out here and figure stuff out, we'll figure it out with you. Um, but candidates are really, really good. Really, really proud of the young people that we've had, you know, apply. And I think with, you know, Jared and I both reaching out on, you know, more of a social network side of things. I'm not on Facebook, but through Twitter and stuff, we, we get a lot of, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not un- uncommon ki- people, you know, wanting to maybe do a career change and stuff like that. And I think that's really interesting and exciting. And I think it goes to show you how much some of the f- things that we do on a daily basis, and we all like to sit in, you know, I just was sitting in a Nebraska Turfgrass Conference, which was great, but, you know, that's a, a labor issue across, you know, the entire country and think we don't have it pretty good. But I think a lot of people in a lot of different industries look and see what we do and are interested and excited and and you know, I think we'll get more and more of that. So we'll we'll see. We're always looking for. We don't we don't have any set regulation. We don't have. We don't want to keep anybody out. I'd, I'd love to see. I'd love to see some females. I haven't had any female applicants. I have some females on my staff that do a great job, and I'd love to see us. I'd we'd love to have a a, a young lady apply and, and become an intern with us in the future. Now that would be that would be awesome. That's a whole other conversation, and it's one that's that's pretty consistently carried on, obviously, in the industry, is just getting more minorities, uh, including women, involved. Sure. So maybe in the 2020s. Let's hope so. Excellent. Well, Kyle Heglin, he is the superintendent at Sand Hills Golf Club in Mullen, Nebraska, one half of a great dual internship along with his former intern, Jared Kalina, at uh, Ballyneal Golf and Hunt Club up in Holyoke, Colorado. Thanks so much for joining us, Kyle. I appreciate it. I appreciate your time. Thank you. My last guest today is editor Guy Cipriano. Of course, you know him as the front of the book columnist, always sharing the first word in Golf Course Industry Magazine. And this month, also the planner, executor, mastermind behind the really great 23-page 8th Annual State of the Industry Survey. We had record numbers for participation, almost 600 superintendents and directors of agronomy, directors of greens and grounds responding, and some really, really interesting responses this year to some really, really interesting questions Because, Guy, this year you didn't focus just on, well, how much are you going to spend? Were you profitable? We asked those questions, but you also asked some more personal questions. How much sleep do you get? When was the last time you went to the doctor? How much do you work out? What was the thought process behind kind of turning the microscope away from just the course to the folks who are maintaining the course as well this year? Well, this is the eighth year we've been doing our State of the Industry survey and it's always a total team effort and we were fortunate this year because we had signet research inc involved so we 
contracted the research out to a highly respected professional research firm, which was awesome. It took a little bit of uh, the load off of us and also helped get it out to the to the right people. So we had 579 respondents, which is the most we've ever had in the eight years of doing this. And yes, Matt, we did do it a little bit differently this year compared to some of the previous years. When we do this, we typically ask benchmarking questions, right? Like, was your course profitable? What is your non-capital maintenance budget? How many maintenance employees do you have this year? What are your line items for specific supplies that would be used to maintain a golf course? And maybe some agronomic questions. Well, we really changed it this year to focus on the personal side of being a superintendent. Now, we ask some benchmark questions because we ask them every year and we wanted those year-over-year comparisons and and they're always fascinating to look look at but like i said we didn't ask as many of those benchmarking questions because we wanted to match some data with the anecdotes that we hear from golf course superintendents and other people in the industry we go out and we travel and we see courses and we attend conferences and we spend a lot of time with golf course superintendents and assistant superintendents and other people that work in maintenance departments and we hear hear these stories about how many hours per week they work how many hours per month they work how many hours per year they work the milestones that maybe they're missing in their personal lives or the lives of their family and how much time they spend away in their their family to care for a golf course which it changes every day so we ask questions to quantify some of those anecdotes such as how many hours per week do you work how many vacation days do you use do you think any of the following people suffer because of the demands of your job? Are the demands of your job worth it? What got you into it? So we really looked at the superintendent as a human being from a data-driven perspective, and the results are fascinating, and they really make for a, a great package to begin 2020 for us because they're included with some stories that are anecdotal. We had our contributor, Anthony Williams, who everybody knows, write a story about what it takes to become a successful superintendent. And then we had Ron Furlong, another one of our superintendent contributors, write a story based on his experiences. And then Matt, you wrote an excellent story where you interviewed seven of the survey respondents and dug deeper into the responses they had uh, to their questions. So we matched uh, data with anecdotes in this and we also had a wonderful illustrator, Daniel O'Leary, who worked with our art director, Jim Blaney. So this is one of the more comprehensive comprehensive packages you'll see about the human side of being a golf course superintendent. And out of all the numbers that you pulled, and there are a lot of great charts to go with Anthony's story and Ron's story and my story, were there any numbers that maybe surprised you, that maybe went against the grain of the industry stereotype? There was certainly uh, one question that got a chuckle out of both of us, Matt, when we first saw it. I know where you're going with this. We had a list of about a dozen hobbies, and it was a check-all-that-playa question. What are your, What do you do away from the golf course? Well, 72% responded they follow or watch sports. 59% responded that family activities are something that they do away from their golf course. Now... Before you think that superintendents would rather watch the Tigers, I guess Clemson, LSU, and Auburn play. Or, or Detroit. Yeah, I know. We're going to stick to college football references in the, in this <laughs> because it's still college football season. 
Yeah, so before you think that superintendents would rather watch the Tigers play or the Crimson Tide, although Alabama doesn't have a turf school, so I'm not sure how much we should mention them in the podcast, or the Spartans or Nittany Lions or Buckeyes or or Bulldogs, and I'm sure I'm going to leave somebody out, so I'm just going to stop right there because leaving out someone's favorite team is an awful management practice in the (laughs) golf industry. Yeah, so that 72% of our respondents say they watch or follow sports, their favorite team, and 59% said family activities. Do golf course superintendents care more about sports and their families? Absolutely not. That 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 question trended a lot of ways for various reasons. Uh, maybe some, we, we had 579 respondents, and I'm sure not all of them had a wife or kids. Maybe some of them had grown children, were in a different position sure. in their life. Uh, so, no, that's no indication on, on – uh, what golf course superintendents think of their families compared to their favorite teams. But that did get a chuckle out of us. And that's one that you're going to, people are going to see and, and say, Oh, wow too. But then when you, when you think a little bit deeper, you realize that that's certainly not, not the case. Although I will say that I've, from my own experiences, I've been to some family events and I'm questioning, what am I doing there? I'd rather be watching college football or golf or tennis or baseball or <laughs> basketball or the NHL or the Olympics or, UFC, whatever else people watch these days. Well, I'm lucky because I have a mother-in-law and one of my wife's many, many uncles uh, are both Cleveland Indians fanatics, as am I. And so whenever I go, I talk with Linda and I talk with Richard about baseball while everybody else talks about whatever else. Plus, it's a huge family. So I don't know. Maybe folks are in that same boat. On the surface, the way you set it up, it's like that old Seinfeld line where the number one fear among all Americans, is public speaking. And the number two fear is death, which means that if you were at a funeral, you would rather be in the casket than delivering the eulogy. Obviously, that's not true, but the way you set up the joke about those two fears, the way you set up the joke about spending time with family versus watching or following a sports team, you know, there's not a lot of truth to either of those, but it's funny on the surface. Yeah, and, and that fits our theme, Matt, to get some data about who these superintendents are as human beings. So we, we that, that one question in particular gave a comprehensive snapshot of what superintendents like to do away from the golf course. So even though we had that curious result at the top of the uh, question, the question served a great purpose, and I'm sure our readers are going to be fascinated when they see the list and then when they see some of the other responses down at the mm-hmm. bottom. And there were a lot of other great responses, too. And we're not going to give them all away on this podcast no. because we want people to, to, <laughs> to read the magazine and visit the website and look at the data that way. The podcast is called Beyond the Page, not On the Page. Yes. So uh, along those same lines, that's maybe one of the responses or, or results that surprised you. What did not surprise you? What among the results, the many, many pages of results we got back from Signet kind of did play into the stereotype of the industry? Well, I'm going to stray away from one of the human questions here, Matt, to give okay. you an answer to that. In, in some of our benchmarking budgetary questions, I wasn't surprised by the fact that golf did well in 2019. If you look at how superintendents responded to the financial situation of their course in 2009, 19, sorry, geez, I want to go back 11 years, not not just one. No, but, I'm very happy in this decade. But I, it, I don't want but to revisit it, that one. In, in 2019... Forty-nine percent of superintendents reported that their course was profitable. That is the highest number we've had in eight years of doing this survey, and that really goes to show that 
when done right, golf is still an attractive product to a lot of consumers. That's very encouraging going into 2020 that that many courses turned a profit. Another 24% broke even. So really 73% of golf courses broke even or turned a profit. So for a industry and a leisurely pursuit that sometimes gets hammered or questioned a lot from outsiders and even people in the industry say that golf isn't doing well, when you have the right weather and the right product, the results of our survey prove that golf is still doing well when when everything aligns. There were some personal questions about sleep and physical health, but as has been written in in other publications as well this year, uh, there were some questions about mental health as well. And there was one quote, if you want to bring this up, there was one quote uh, from Doug Palm at Cattails up in Michigan. Doug Palm from Cattails Michigan Golf Club said, it seems like this year a lot of people are realizing their potential for burnout. It seems like a lot of us are workaholics or just afraid to leave our properties. I think that's hard for a lot of people. That's certainly a telling quote, and there are definitely a lot of people in, in the industry, Matt, that feel like that. But one of the things that really, to me, concerned me with this survey is we, we've spent so much in the last two years in this industry talking about mental health. Mm-hmm. But what about the physical health of golf course mm-hmm. superintendents? This is something that deserves more recognition and attention, and it's something that you've already done a great job with the, uh, with the Off the Course podcast, is that golf course superintendents only average 2.5 hours of fitness per week, according to our survey result, and only 45% of them are two hours or more. So that means that 55% of superintendents are averaging less than two, two hours of fitness per week. I believe it was less than 20, uh, uh, tw- around 20% said they don't get any fitness per week. That's very troubling. You live, golf course superintendents work at a place where you can combine fitness and work. Now, I know it's not feasible at every golf course because of how it's laid out around homes and some of the distances between holes, but on some of the more compact golf courses your your 80 to 130 18 whole acre properties there are definitely ample opportunities to get fitness in during work i've visited i've visited a few superintendents over the years who walk the golf course multiple times per week well if you walk the golf course once during the morning for your scouting twice a week you're going to get more than two and a half hours of fitness right there and Mm -hmm. maybe maybe some people don't even think of the walks that they do around the golf course as fitness but and walking is is fitness walking is a form of fitness you're you're not sedentary you're you're moving around you're you're sweating a bit you're you're releasing some of the tension in in your mind so there have been some things that have been done with the mental health that have been really encouraging to raise awareness to that but to me this industry really needs to think about physical health long and hard. And we're going to see some things that the golf course industry show that, that are great. Uh, the, the GCSAA and Sagena have had a 5k now, I believe this is the fourth year of it. The first one was in Orlando. So this is the second time it's going to be held in Orlando. We have our little informal GIS group run that about a dozen of us do every year. And everyone's welcome to attend. That's at uh, 6 AM Wednesday, January 29th outside the convention center. Uh, highly encourage you to come run with your peers or the networking. To me, that's the best networking opportunity at golf at the golf industry show. The, the 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 group of us, the six or eight of us that have done it for the last four or five years have this bond. We know we're going to see each other at the same time every year, and they've become industry friends of mine. And 
Uh, they've become terrific uh, sources for us here at Golf Course Industry. They always give us insight in the, in the stories, and some of them are really influential people in the industry. So I highly encourage you to show up for that. But, but to me, our survey reveals that 2020, there needs to be a focus on physical health this year in the golf industry, just as much as there is with men- mental health. Is and, maybe, and maybe if you are taking care of yourself physically and going out and sweating, I know I feel a, a heck of a lot better every time I go out and sweat mentally because of doing that, that physical fitness. I went out and ran for a half an hour on the towpath across the street right before we recorded this podcast. So yep, and that's I'm why Matt you. is filled with energy right now. No, Matt, Matt does a great job of taking time at work and going out for a half hour and running. And guess what? His supervisor doesn't hold it against him. In fact, it's highly encouraged with well, the superintendent. Superintendent. So, when the when the weather is nice, you go out and work on your short game for forty five minutes or an hour. So it balances out. Yeah. Well, also my workout's done by the time I'm a morning (laughs) workout person. But here's the point: you think you have a lot going on during your day. You think that whatever you're doing at the golf course or in your office is so important that you can't leave. But that half hour where you leave and get some fitness in, whether it's a run or a bike ride or a walk around the golf course, is going to make you feel better, and you're probably going to perform better in your back half of the day Mm -hmm. because you did that and i did not miss a single phone call or email when i was out no besides the dozen that i sent you no those came in after i got back no (laughs) so is this is this something we're going to be covering more in 2020 physical health you've all you've already done an excellent job with it with the off the course podcast which i highly recommend everyone downloading and we're going to look into this more and you'll, you'll see fun running pictures on our twitter feed and our facebook page from the GIS runs, and it's certainly going to be something that we're going to pay attention to more. And I, I think real, really uh, we've done a good job of being ambassadors for fitness in the golf industry, at golf course industry. We show up at these running events. We, we sometimes uh, make sure that we run when we're on the road and have group runs with people and walk golf courses, you know, all 18 holes when we go and cover events. But really we're going to take it upon ourselves to even bring awareness more awareness to the fitness opportunities that are involved on a golf course. Excellent. Well, I think that's good for now. We don't want to talk too much about GIS because we got to have something to talk about next week with Greens with Envy. Next week, Greens with Envy, Episode 8. Uh, Guy's going to be back. We're going to preview uh, the golf industry show down in Orlando, talk about a few other things going into that show. I think that wraps it up for another episode of Beyond the Page. Happy 2020, Guy. Yep, happy 2020. We're psyched for it. Thanks for listening, and we will talk with you again soon and hope to see you in Orlando at the annual Golf Industry Show. Thanks for listening to Beyond the Page. I'm Matt Lowell. He's Guy Cipriano, and you are listening to the Superintendent Radio Network.